1: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Pat, it's 2020. Yeah. It's a new year. Yeah. Do you reckon if we call Jason Furman, his attitude might have improved? Only one way to find out. Should we call him? Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Hello, Boof Ed.
2: Hey, Cockhead, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) You woke me up, you
1: bastard. we're recording another ad, and we thought we'd call him. (laughs) Yeah, you fucking
2: woke me up. You're lucky alright. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that
3: one of the reasons you don't like people calling you Because you work nights
2: Yeah, that's like <laughs> I, I, I try to stay awake Until like a midday But no, people ring me at like 3 in the afternoon
3: oh. Like as if
2: they have live
3: Hey, Jace, Got any cool stuff for sale Through einswickdogquip.com
2: Yeah, so you get on the website And if you're a balanced trainer Certified balanced trainer, that's NDTF Or Bart Bell and Gold School right. um, You can get up to $40 off HS products.
3: I see. Is that because you're an ethical good guy and you're trying to outprice people just buying them without knowing what they're doing with them?
2: Pretty much. There are other reasons, but mostly it's that. I'm, I, I am an asshole as well. But, hey, <laughs>
3: <that>. <laughs> so if people wanted all this kind of dog training equipment
1: Equipmunk? Uh, yeah, equipment. Is that a chipmunk that has equipment on? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is,
2: is that my new name, Pat? Yeah,
1: you're Equip the monk.
2: You're the monk. <laughs> yeah. Where do they
1: go to check out that?
2: Best bet is einzweck.com www.einzweck.com.
1: All right. Happy New Year, Buffett. Glenn, are you eating dog food? I'm not eating dog food. Okay. But so people thought I was last time. This is why we're redoing this ad because last time we were doing it, we had people ringing up saying, I'm very confused. It sounds like you're eating dog food. What dog not. food did people think you were eating? They thought I was eating Bright Spites. Why would people think you were eating it? Well, because on our ad last time, I made a little rustle and you said, Glenn, what are you doing? And I said, I'm enjoying some Bright bites." Isn't it that the Bright bites are so healthy and
3: nutritious for a dog that they're amazing to use in training because dogs love the flavor of them. They're Correct. actually very good for the dog. Hmm. And they're so delicious that you thought maybe you'd have a little
1: nibble? Well, you could because it's been so well made, as you said, as you pointed out. Kylie Bright uses all the best products that you could possibly think of in her dog treats, mm-hmm. that you could possibly eat them, but they're not recommended for human consumption, but they are great for your dog. Okay. Where would I get these? Dog Squad Canineservices.com.au.
3: Did you say Dog Squad Canineservices.com.au?
1: I did, sir. Would I spell that canine or spell it out? Canine, as in C A N I N E, not but- K nine. Okay. So spell it out dog
3: squad canineservices.com.au. Get yourself some Bright's Bites, use them to train your dog. Don't have a nibble yourself unless you really want to. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook, and for the first time ever doing a Skype interview with an Australian, but that's because he's on the other side of the country, which may as
1: well be another planet, please welcome Ben Gertz. Thanks, lads. Hey, Ben. How are you, mate?
0: (laughs) Good, mate. Good, mate. Good to be here. Thank you. very much for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, where is it worries at all. It's hey, kind of a funny thing, like as you said before, Western Australia is actually seen as a different part of Australia from most people on the east coast. Well, it's it is like I think people
3: take for granted, you know, Australia's population is like thirty million people or whatever, but it's huge. It's it's a long way away. It's a it's as big as America. It's like a six-hour flight, five or six hours to get over there. Mm. So we're just talking yeah, about long, how isolated it's a long you life. are. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm still a human. <laughs> well, we are still part of Australia, contrary to popular belief. For now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah true.
3: Hey, Ben, thanks All for right, coming man. on the show, mate. So, your business is, well, a couple of different facets of your business, right? You've got like Gertz Canine Solutions, but then just Canine Solutions that you do with Jace Kelly. That's right. Mate, people would have seen you online and maybe seen some of the videos that you guys do, but, you know, our sort of pitch on the show is we love to hear people's backstories. So, Give us the rundown, mate. How did you get into all this? How is it that you're on the show and we're talking to a guy who's known for producing police dogs in Australia? How did you get to that point?
0: Yeah, okay. It's a sort of a long story. Yeah, that's good. You've got time. I joined the, I actually joined the army in 1995. I went to artillery, which was in hindsight, probably a mistake.
3: Yeah. A lot of Uh,
0: ironing. But yeah, really, really shitty job actually, just Move big lumps of metal around, and and you get to shoot a few bombs and do a few fun things, but there's a lot of shitty work as well involved. So it's a pretty shitty, dead end job. And I was on a, as you as you would know, Pat, the sub one for corporal course. I bumped into a guy there. He was an MP dog handler, mm-hmm. and basically every chance I had on that course, I just chatted to him about his dog and his job and how awesome it was. And on that course, then I decided when I was going to get back to my unit, I'd tr- I'd transfer to be a dog handler. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I did.
1: So Ben, sorry to jump in on you there. Were you interested in dogs at all before you were in the army? Like did you have a dog yourself or was that a new experience for you altogether?
0: Yeah, fair call. Now I always had dogs growing up as a child and I remember we lived on some rural properties. We moved around a lot. Um, I lived on a couple of little tiny, well, small rural properties like market, farm size. And I, I guess what ignited my passion for dogs was My dad used to go down to the Animal Welfare League and grab a dog. And then we'd try and turn that into the perfect dog. And when he didn't like it, he'd send it back and get another one. (laughs) Um, It was a bit of a phase he was going through at the time. And I remember I just kept trying to make each dog a project to try and save it. So I didn't go back to the Animal Welfare League. (laughs) Um, So that sort of ignited a bit of a thing for dogs for me, I guess. But when I joined the army, I was still at home then, and basically, I was just a young 18 year old, wet behind the ears, joined the army, and everything changed from there.
3: Back when you joined the army, you wouldn't get to choose corps then either, right? You just got allocated a corps. Oh,
0: yeah. That's right, yeah. When you got your allocations to your platoon, as you know, and then you, you just picked one of those and hoped that you passed your test on the day, which most people didn't because they were probably tired. I actually didn't have a choice. So when I say I chose artillery, I actually didn't have a choice. Yeah. I, there were yeah, there were basically three spots available to me: artillery, artillery, or grunt. For those who don't know, grunt is infantry. Yeah. So I I chose artillery because my old man was in artillery. So was, yeah, and it was in Manly. School of Artillery was in Manly back then. Yeah, yeah. So I was Singleton or Manly. So I went with Manly.
3: And then the yeah. army realized, hang on, this is like a billion dollar property that. <laughs> That's right.
1: And they sold it. In yeah. Manly, Sydney.
3: Yeah, it's yeah. like up on
1: like yeah. North Head. Then. Oh,
3: really? Yeah, North Head was the school of artillery. Okay. That's right.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and the- I guess the irony is, I think a lot of that was then heritage listed and, they, and they'd and not been able to use it for anything else anyway. So,
3: um, yeah. It, it's a funny one, too. A lot of people. I don't know. We're not here to talk about the artillery, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the, it's the most Reggie core. It's the most army army core. Like there's a lot of, because to deploy your artillery is considered an act of war. So it's to, to yep. a, and, and there's very few places you can use it. Well, that's right? when you start
0: loading in, isn't
3: it? Yeah. So there's a lot of time for artillery corps people not spent doing cool army
0: stuff. There's a lot of ironing. Yeah. A lot of painting rocks and shining brass and yeah. painting gutters and cleaning. A lot of cleaning. Yeah. There wasn't much army stuff until you're out bush. We were out bush for like six months of the year. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Dragging guns around.
0: <laughs> but all you would do is yeah, drag a gun around and, and shoot some bombs and and that's exciting at first, but that gets just loud and annoying after a while. Yeah. yeah. Have you got tinnitus? No. <laughs> Say again. Have you got tinnitus? Yeah, I've got actually horrendous tinnitus, actually, yeah. I've got a hearing aid that I have to wear to, yeah. so I can think, yeah.
3: Hey, so sidetrack there. So you meet this MP yeah. dog handler <laughs> and you decide, okay, I'm going to transfer over to MPs. And at that period, could you go directly in as a dog handler, or did you have to go and become an MP and then hope to become a dog handler from there?
0: Yeah, you had to become an MP first. But I got pretty lucky. I went straight from the MP course to, to the dog handling course. So I was, oh, but, but that wasn't normal at the time. Right. I could have got, I also could have easily have just been an MP at Holsworthy the Army Barracks or something. Yeah. But I got very lucky. I went straight from an MP course, straight to my dog handling course and the Air Force was running those for MPs at the time as well. Right. So I was at Amberley, at the RAF base at Amberley. Yeah. Right. That yeah. was in 1999.
3: And so the Australian Army, I think the American Army is pretty similar as well, but the Air Force is like the lead of the capability, right? So say if you want to, for people listening, if you want to join the Army and be a dog handler, you can't do that. Like you, the only place where the being a dog handler is a career and you can join to be one specifically is Air in the Air Force. Force,
0: yeah. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Or, and I think even that's probably changing soon where that'll be a, a stream of a career, not an actual career itself, even right, in the Air okay. Force.
3: Yeah, there you go. Yeah,
0: so you are yeah, a- at the moment you can definitely join the Air Force as a dog handler. That's yeah. the only one. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep.
3: So you do your your course through MPs, and then you're an MP dog handler.
0: Yeah. So then I got posted to Oki Aviation Base, I, and on the course I had, I actually was unlucky enough to have three dogs on the course. Right. So the first dog I had was a dog called Socks. Really, really cool sort of show line German Shepherd, big gangly thing really friendly dog very um defensive dog so if anyone went anywhere near me he'd he'd attack them and he was tied to a post he'd attack anyone and i even i was sort of at a little bit of a risk right. but he wouldn't engage anything away from him so he had no actual sort of prey drive so yeah. they sort of realized that he wasn't going to make the grade about halfway through the course they gave me a dog called scud another sort of shoreline shepherd but he was actually a really good dog but he got a, an injury to his lips and they weren't sure if it was going to be permanent. It was just from biting the padded sleeves because we used the old chainsaw method back then. <laughs> um, so they weren't sure if that was going to be a permanent issue. So they took him off me and they gave me a dog called Salem about two weeks out from course that was already actually qualified. And the test was, could I get him out and, and not get bitten by him in the first week of course, basically. It's <laughs> one of those. And then I could have him.
1: Yeah. So. What was his name? What did you say his name was? Salem Salem right yeah Salem yeah and he, he it's was a bit better the socks at, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not very and tough was, having an
0: army he was a lot, was a lot better a dog too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, he, he was actually a showline shepherd as well believe it or not but he was quite he was a, he was a good little dog he wasn't great but he was a good little dog he a little cranky dog but he wasn't he wasn't overly vicious or anything but again if our dogs were a lot the same if you come near most of them on leash they'd bite you uh-huh. Um and he was he was that dog he was a nasty nasty dog but he wasn't he wasn't vicious he's was a bit defensive but he had a, he had a bit of prey drive enough prey drive to to do the job so yeah
3: and did the training back then sort of reflect that was it kind of a lot of table work or you know defensive style training
0: not really we didn't really talk drives much then we just start it just started to talk about drives but it was more. It was all based on Keela method. Mm-hmm. If you've ever read the the Keela method of guard dog training, it was really based on that. Yeah. A lot of flicking of towels at dogs' feet and then running around dancing like a chicken and, and letting <laughs> them bite rags. And if yeah. they did that well, we'd let them bite a sleeve and run away and rip them off the sleeve. And it was very, very old school, crash and bash style.
1: But that's all we had back then, right? I mean, we've talked about this on the show in several sessions that we've done. That was what we knew back then. Like our influences weren't very broad at that point in time. Like we were reading books like the Keeler Method and we were, you know, like watching old VHSs of Learberg and some of the other providers that came out during the time. We were very limited on resource, so we had to make it up as we went along.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The Keeler Method is a pretty harsh sort of method of training But if you use it as written in the book, it actually works. Yeah, it Um, served its
1: purpose. Yeah, for sure.
0: It it works. The dogs do stuff. It's interesting. All the dogs back then in the Air Force and Army, as in the MPs, they all healed. If you said Mm -hmm. heal, off leash, they all healed. They all did the obstacles on one command with you standing in in the middle. Mm -hmm. They all downed. They all did a recall. And as we learnt all these modern techniques and we learned that, hey, you know, that's probably not ethical, some of the stuff we're doing to the dogs. And certainly, I wouldn't train a dog like that nowadays. I just don't think it's ethical now that I know there's better ways. But the interesting thing was when we learned there was better ways and we can use food and all these motivational styles, a lot of the dogs actually don't do things reliably anymore. <laughs> no. So it's in, they look nicer. They're happier but the behaviours aren't anywhere near as reliable. So I don't think we're getting that balance quite right all the time.
1: Yeah. yeah. Which is why we fight so vehemently to stay as balanced as we possibly can so we can refer to some of the old and the best of the new.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's funny, yeah. mate. You'd be in the
3: exact same boat as me. Yeah, you know, we'll talk about the Nipopo schools and how you're teaching mm-hmm. it and that, but what I find teaching it is that there's never anybody in the room that's surprised by the whole thing. It's half. There's people who are like, "Yeah, yeah, that popo part. I'm, I'm all over that. That's amazing." Yeah, and yeah. the old, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the old Nepo part of it. People are like, you know, everything old is new again. They're like, "Wow, this is amazing because they've just not been exposed to it because it's all sort of, you know, force-free, hands-off, really effective, positive training." But mm. the positive part, and then the other half of the room, and usually there's kind of an age demographic on those people as well. Are like. Mm hang on, what's this positive shit? I know this Nepo <laughs> stuff, like you, you, you're preaching to the choir there, but then there's this other yeah. thing, and, you know, the answer is in the fusion, but we'll talk about that later on. Mm. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, from there, went to the MPs in Oakey, mm-hmm. and uh, so there's a – I don't know if you've ever heard of Oakey, but it's a really cold, shitty joint. It's, I was about um,
1: to say, where's Oakey? I never heard of it.
0: It's west of Toowoomba, so it's up the range. To Toowoomba, and then you go a bit further west, which is that's, that's all west of Brisbane. Yep. And it's really, really cold straight up the range. It doesn't go down. You go up this massive range, and then it just plateaus. Um, and it's a freezing cold joint in winter. Yeah, and I, I was posted there for I think a year and a half, and then there was a lot of talk about MPs because at the time you, it was a career in the MPs. You, right, could, so be you there could stay a doggy, right? Yeah, and but then we'd only been there a year and a half and then they were talking about no longer, it's a career. You maybe lose your dog after three years and go back to being a normal MP. Mm-hmm. And I, I just was not interested in being an MP. I, I'll be honest, I wasn't particularly good at it. <laughs> and I just, I just wanted to train dogs. I was just passionate about dogs then. I was hook, line and sinker. I lived, breathed, thought about dogs in my sleep, read about dogs every waking hour. So I wasn't interested in anything else. So the only place I could do that was the Air Force. So I transferred to the Air Force
3: right, yeah, in 2001. Into that career stream. And that is exactly what happened with MPs, right? So now with the military police, yep. they do their, their little stint two or three years and that's it and yep. perhaps never even handle a dog again or not even be yep. in the dog unit unless you come back as the platoon sergeant or something like that. Right. That's correct, yeah. Which is yep. crazy yep. of Army, right? Like just when you're really learning your job, they move you out of it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, do- it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, to be honest. It, it still doesn't. And I'll, I'll look at their program, and I think you can tell with their program, and I'm, I hope I'm not talking out of school. Someone will probably get upset here, but I think you can certainly tell that most of their handlers are relatively novices. I'm sure there's some excellent ones there, I'm sure, but of you can definitely tell that in general, the skills probably aren't as good as, as they would be if you had people doing it for a career. Yeah, you know? if they just got to spend some more time in the role.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. So in the Air Force, how long did you end up doing in the Air Force total?
0: I think I was in the Air Force from 2001 till 2015. Right, okay. Big chunk of time. I discharged, mm. yeah. Mm.
3: And so, tell us about your roles there.
0: I was actually posted to Pearce, which is in Perth, as just a uh, just a dog hammer. Did a couple of years there. Moved across to, where did I go from, Pearce. I actually went posted to the school then in the Amberley, the, the RAF dog school, and that was that's probably where my biggest learning curve happened. Mm-hmm. That's where everything changed for me. We had over 100 dogs there at the time. They'd only had a breeding program up and going for a, a year or two, and there was just things happening everywhere, and the learning curve was, was extreme. And to Air Force's credit, there were a lot of bosses there that were really – it was a tough place to work because we didn't know how to fix it, but we knew it was broken. Mm-hmm. So they just threw money at it, sent us on every course they could, liaised with America a lot. Uh, the U.S. forces were really good there. And then I also started to get involved in the dog sport, Schutzen. And, you know, I looked at their dogs healing and looking beautiful while they were healing and, and happy and, and performing these super fast behaviors. And then I'd look over the fence at our dogs they were reliable, but they weren't happy doing obedience. Obedience was, was hard work for them. Mm-hmm. And their bite work was a bit messy and their grips were a bit messy. And I just thought, why are these guys who are doing it for a hobby <laughs> creating a better picture than us who are professionals? Yeah. So then I decided to study that and, and I got involved in that. Yeah, so Amberley, was, I was very lucky to get there at that time. I worked in a breeding cell, the development cell for juveniles, adults, I think eight months of my posting there, I imprinted puppies. (laughs) So for eight months, my my job was I got puppies at six weeks of age from the mum. Right. And then I imprinted them until they were 16 weeks of age and they went to foster care. So, you know, that was pretty lucky.
3: Yeah, that's Um, another job.
0: Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, I moved to other areas and I got to see what that imprinting created, but look. and then i went to other units and then i saw some of those pups come to those units and then you know you, you're really lucky when you can actually go okay that behavior i saw when he was eight weeks turned into this that behavior when i saw it 10 weeks turned into this or that thing i did when 12 weeks i really shouldn't have done that because that turned into this <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if you know what i mean so i think that really really fortunate there and did lots of other stuff kmpv seminars Stuart Hilliard come over for a few seminars. It's just so much learning going on, almost too much. One of the things we really learnt was we learnt all these playing games and and prey games, and I remember when we first started, you didn't know about play drive and prey drive and defence drive, but what you knew was what a serious dog looked like. Mm -hmm. You knew. You were like, yeah, okay, that one's serious. He's just playing. I know that he's not really real. And you you didn't really accept that. You're like, well, he's not real. We need to have a real dog just in case one day something the worst happens. So, but then we discovered all these play prey games, and for some reason we went away from that. And we and we were creating dogs that were biting sleeves super well, but we but we knew deep down inside they were never they would never actually going to do the job properly. Mm-hmm. That's something I also learned just before I left the school was, hey, we're messing this up. And we were getting rid of dogs that actually were a bit nasty and a bit serious because they wouldn't play these play-prey games. Yeah. <laughs> but we're keeping all these play-prey monsters, but that wouldn't actually seriously engage someone. So that's that's where, you know, me and Jay's come up with our sort of non-vactro system where we really focus on making sure the dogs aren't equipment-focused. They are focused on the man Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And then um, yeah, we we grow from there. Just sort of going back a step on that, mate. Talking about passing
3: these dogs through the program and knowing that they're probably never going to engage. Yeah. When in the air force, the chances of a bite happening are pretty low, right? Because it's sort of airfield yeah, security, extremely low. right? Yeah. And yeah. so you'd sort of would have been talking in a lot of hypotheses then. So we're, like you, yeah. you would have had a hard time pitching your case to people perhaps who felt strongly about the opposite of you um, yeah. because there wasn't probably any opportunity to, for proof. Right. Yeah. Cause it's not like you can just go, well, okay, I'm going to jump the fence and see how we go, here, oh, you no know, right. equipment and see what happens yeah. and hidden equipment, you know, that, that has its place, but it, it's only ever hidden once. So, what was the catalyst for you then to be able to say like to prove it or whatever? Was that when you were say like when you were at SAS and there was more, you know, throughput like the dogs being sort of raised, trained, developed and, and hitting the streets or not the streets, but the, you know, going on missions and engaging or not. Was it that, or was there something else that, that really was the the evidence you needed to push your system forward?
0: Yeah. So I guess the evidence for me was a dog called Fax. And there was a few dogs leading into that that sort of made me start going, hang on, we're going about this the wrong way. And in extreme cases, what we would actually do was we would agitate the dog and get it barking and, and look in the business and everyone would be going, wow, he's a weapon. And give him a bite on the sleeve. They'd go, wow, he's awesome. And then I'd agitate the exact same dog and deliberately put my real arm in his mouth. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we'd only do that when we knew <laughs> for sure.
2: <laughs> but um,
0: but that, they would literally touch you and then apologize. Yeah. Like, and, we, which someone, and, and we had to do that a few times in extreme cases to go, there's no way we're going to let this dog go on course because mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure. You're right. People didn't – a lot of people didn't agree with us. No, nah, no, nah, they'll be right. And a lot of people didn't care because they're like, well – there's 0.01% chance of a bite happening, of you needing him to bite someone. So is it really that important? He's more of a visual deterrent. And that's where me and the organization sort of didn't really agree, which ultimately led to me leaving. Yeah. But, yeah, so this dog called Fax is a young Malinois. And I, I remember I was at Amberley Dog section now. I wasn't actually at the school, but I went down there one night and I went to visit, I think, Steve Cannon or, or one of the guys at the breeding cell. And I was walking past the yards, and I used to leave some of the young dogs in the yards because there was just so many dogs, and excessive confinement was a big issue there. And I was walking down the yards, and all these, this whole my litter were at the gate, losing it, like just barking horrendously, wanting to get through the wire to get me. And I couldn't help myself. I'm a decoy at heart, so I just turned into a decoy and ran up and down the fence and, and let them cook off and chase me away. And... And I went in and said, wow, Steve, they're awesome, or whoever was in there. And they're like, oh no, that oh what litter is that? Oh, the F litter. Oh no, most of them are up for disposal. Oh, like, well, that's weird. Why is that? And uh, they could they wouldn't play these play prey games. Right. So I I asked, actually, believe it or not, and I think that's what happens when you you get stuck in a system, you forget about common sense and you forget about all the things that actually work. And I actually asked one of the kennel hands at the time, which was a really nice old guy in his just retirement age, just earning an extra couple bucks, cleaning some kennels. And I said, mate, what do you think of those F litter dogs? And he goes, oh, yeah, they're real bullies. They're real shit. whereas most of them are for disposal. I mean, I said, well, which one do you like the most? And he goes, well, that facts. I don't like cleaning his kennel because he's a bit of a bully. And then I went to the guys at the school and asked if I could foster one of their dogs from the F litter that's up for disposal. And they said, yeah, you can take facts. So I took him and the dog really didn't have any interest in balls or chasing or playing any play prey games. So we just used some old-fashioned killer methods, stalk him, he barks, run away. Mm -hmm. Stalk him, he barks, run away. And a guy, Chris Erseg, a guy from the RAF, one day was agitating him and the dog was a bit flat and he just tapped him on the nose and it was literally just a dunk, little quick tap on the nose and the dog really took offense to that <laughs> and flipped out and he ran away and then ever since that day the dog was just went from strength to strength mm-hmm. and so that's when I sort of thought well maybe all these play prey games don't really tell you a whole lot about the dog other than how well it plays mm-hmm. And I and I'm adamant about that now I just think some of the best dogs I've seen with grips, super grips, and all these sexy things, a guy sitting in chairs patting dogs and telling them all good, how great they are. And Sometimes those dogs are real, but sometimes they're just playing a, an orchestrated game. Mm. So, yeah, so that's where we went. Nah, this isn't right.
1: It's interesting you say that, mate. I remember going back probably a span of 25 years ago, it was probably the first time I have ever exposed to a hidden sleeve, Because we were doing the same thing. We were just using jute sleeves when we were doing most of our training. And some of the dogs looked absolutely fantastic on the field. And I remember the guy that I was working for a time, a guy called Boyd Hooper, he brought back all these old archaic hidden sleeves, which were very painful to use when he used them with a good dog. 60% of the dogs or a large percentage of the dogs, when they hit that hidden sleeve, they completely freaked right out. Like it was just such a fear response from the dogs. Like they'd touch it and it was like you said before – You put your arm in the mouth and the dog almost apologised to you for making contact with you. There was a meme you put up a while ago with with that dog that was disputing with his handler about wanting to bite the guy, like saying, oh, I might hurt him if I bite him or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That was primarily (laughs) what it was like. It was a a really weird experience because I was convinced, I mean, I was young guys in my 20s at the time when we were doing this, and I was convinced that these dogs would bite. Like, if you asked me or even gave me a litmus test and said, you know, do you think these dogs would bite, I, I would hand on heart saying, yeah, you. Or they'll wreck you. Getting the hidden sleeve out, it was a real turning point in my career to see these dogs transform from a dog that on a visible sleeve, when it was very overt, they would absolutely crush the sleeve. You know, they're very comfortable in doing the job. The predatory response was there. It was absolutely terrific. Put a hidden sleeve on, completely different transformation in the dog. Like yeah. the, the dog went into full escape avoidance. You know, yeah, the dog yeah. went into that whole process and it, you wouldn't fathom it. And mm. but there were some other dogs there that once they sunk their teeth in, they thought, "Oh, this is real." Now it's time to go hard. So you really, you'd really, <laughs> really sort the wheat from the chaff on that process. And it wasn't until that happened mm. that that was a transformational point in my career as a as a young trainer.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say it's it's just interesting how you know, many roads lead to Rome, mm. definitely. And sometimes you do just sleep. You can do sleep biting with a dog, and he bites a sleeve, and then he was straight away bite a person. But I think there's also many times where you do a bunch of sleeve biting with a dog as his foundation, who would have bit a person, but now because of two years of sleeve biting, won't. Yeah, I've definitely seen that, Mm. and and then we have to retrain it and go, no, 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 you don't need this. You can actually engage a person, and then they go, oh, why didn't you just say so? And I just think it's it's contextual. It's like anything.
1: Well, an old colleague of mine explained that as giving the dummy back to the toddler. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, you know back because back. that same sort of sit- I've seen that situation before where a dog that's really well trained in its responses and will actually engage and will bite when you start putting it back on the sleeve and you start excessively training the dog the dog basically just goes back to this is more rewarding this is the type of training I want to do now I don't want to go and bite people anymore I'd just happy on the jute mm. Yeah
3: I think yeah. to understand another layer of that you know civilians kind of understand the word being dogmatic but to police and military and people in those places, it's doctrine. It's not dogma, right? Like you follow, this is what I was told to do. This is Mm. written down in the PAM. This is what I do. And sometimes the source of that information can be not unbiased, right? Uh, And So I think some of the training that you see is training designed to make a dog look good in training, right? And it's designed that way by someone who, you know, wanted that, for the training purpose or maybe they, you know, maybe the original guy in a unit, and this is an example I'm, I'm trying to give vague enough detail to not give away who it is. It's outside this country anyway, but maybe the guy who started the unit was, had a mate who was a vendor of dogs and the dogs weren't so good. And so he then trains those dogs in a way that makes them look good to keep his mate Money, but the problem is he trains the guys who know nothing about dogs. To them, the way of making a dog look good is just normal dog training to them. And then when the dog doesn't go out and engage, it's not their fault and it's not the dog's fault. It's you know six people ago, and it's that's what's written down. This is how we train the dog. This is the system. This is what we do. And no one who's still there is at fault for that. And. A lot of the times, yeah, like civilians would look at that and say, "Oh, you know, you, you're dogmatic in your training." But in a lot of, you know, police and military establishment, it's not dogmatic; it's doctrine. Like it's yep. written right here. This is the, this is how we do it. And and changing doctrine in uh, government agency is a difficult thing to do. Mm. Yeah,
1: it's by that's the expression by the book. Yeah, literally, mm. yeah.
0: Yeah, what what we've learned is a dog can bite a, a hidden sleeve. A dog can bite a bite suit. A dog can do mu- even do muzzle fighting. Or super well, and still not engage on the road.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm sure people, some people who don't really know, wouldn't wouldn't believe that and think, no, no, if he does a muzzle fire, he's definitely going to engage on the road, and it's just not true. I just think it comes down to what mindset did the dog start his bite work in, what mood was he in, what mood is he approaching this in, and and if it's anything other than predation or aggression, it's not useful. It's not going to work. Real time, so that's and and that's why I'm not interested in how well a dog bites a sleeve. I really could care less. Mm. Me and Jace, we actually don't even we don't even use padded sleeves at all. We don't own them. I don't even own one for canine solutions. I use them for girths, canine for sport dogs, but we'd never use a padded sleeve for our um, police or military dogs that we train. We just don't bother. And when we give them their first bite, we wait until. They're showing us they want to bite that person. And when we go, oh, man, he, I'm glad you didn't let him get any closer, Jace. And that's when you have that feeling, like, oh, I'm glad he didn't, he didn't get too close then. Then we put on some PPE. We might wear a hidden sleeve or something. And then and then we, we let them bite us. And, and, and often the first bite's a bit shitty. Because the dog's just as scared as you are. He's going, oh, no, it's happening, it's happening. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, no. And then he might have a shitty bite and then you you just pull yourself free from his mouth and disappear just like a wildebeest would in the wild. A wildebeest isn't going to go and give him a second chance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then we don't give him a bite for another month. And then we try again. That's sort of – so their first bite usually for, for us is on a hidden sleeve. And – he doesn't know what a sleeve is so he has no idea what a hidden sleeve is yeah. and and it's just we wait until he's ready to bite a person and then we with and that's why when me and jay's get a young dog and we give him a bite and we just did we just got two the young dogs he's training on on monday actually and gave him their first bites and they went pretty well and you know we're high-fiving and we want to drink a scotch together because that's when we've realized that it's a dog not just <laughs> For sure, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. it it
1: does. I've got an old worry story I want to tell you. Stand fast. Yep, stand fast. Again, I'm going back early in my career when I was actually doing street security with my dog, and he'd been trained at the training center, and we were using primarily sleeves all the time. And that was the genuine concern to me at that point in training was, is my dog just going to be a dog that as soon as anyone comes, like, is this going to be real? Is it going to be a real situation? Will he engage in a in a street fight situation? And that was always the fear I had because I thought he's amazing at sleeve work. What happens when it gets real? Because he's never really bitten anyone before. He would bite a padded sleeve, but again, that was always presented, and he would commit to it. But what about when it was real? So I went on the job site one night, and I pre organized this. I had one of my colleagues. I said, "Can you come down with the bite suit?" Because we just back then we purchased a, a new bite suit from a company called Ray Allen. And uh, I said, can you chuck it in your car, come down? And I said, but what I want you to do is don't give the dog any time to respond. You know, like I want you to literally to come out of the bush and just fucking attack me. You know, and I said, if you take me down, you take me down. I said, but I've got to know if this is going to be real. I said, I'm working a rough area. Shit gets real around here. Really got to know if my dog's going to do anything. And I said, because I'm at this point in this juncture, I'm concerned that it won't happen. And I said, don't let him detect you. You know, I don't want him to smell you. I don't want him to do anything. I just want to know what he did. And he had never seen a bite suit. He'd never seen a bite suit at that point. So he, young fella, Eric, who was one of my understudies at the time, Jumped in the bite suit, came down there. I'm walking along the street. He just jumps out and just fucking rugby tackles me, knocks me to the ground. My dog grabs him by the leg, and he'd never been trained in leg bites before up until that time. And he just fucking annihilated him. Like he shook him like a rag doll. And it was that, again, you know, like when you were talking about that before, Ben, it just made me think of this story. Like it was a crowning moment in my life where I just fist pumped I'm going yeah my dog's real like he's legit like he'll take down somebody and from that moment on I knew he was the real McCoy like he wasn't scared it didn't take time for him to respond he instantly grabbed him Mm -hmm. like he he just flogged him by the leg and just shook him crazy and I thought wow and I mean look I even had trouble getting him to out because he was so pumped up but Mm. right then and right there I knew that all the training I did and the genetics of my dog had all corresponded and I legitimately had a high-end working dog. Mm-hmm. That was the only time I was convinced from then on, I was never doubtful. And I mean, and after that he engaged in some pretty serious real bites. So, you know, he took several people down and never batted an eyelid about it. And I thought, fuck, this is just awesome. Mm. Yeah. Nice. But it, look, nice. it does, it, it does take those moments, you know I mean? And that's where you have to be real about this. Like, And you're describing this as part of your career path is, you know, we're trying to transform these dogs into not just being equipment focused monsters where you come out and they get all uh, hyped up about seeing the equipment on the field, but dogs that will legitimately do their job, like they'll go to war and they'll put their own self-preservation behind them. They'll think, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm committed.
0: Yeah, we've got a pretty high success rate from dogs which we've trained this way. To committing to their first bites with a pretty high success rate, so we're pretty happy with that. So we'll probably stick to this way, but it's a it's it's difficult. It's it, there's a lot of lot of um unknown questions until often the dog's twelve months of age. You're still wondering.
3: Yeah, that's what I was going to um, ask. Like I know it's kind of a how long's a piece of string question, but yeah. when when do you tend to go? Like okay, they're ready. Like I know every dog's an individual. He's, he's going to tell you, yeah. but if you would give me an average of age, what when is that?
0: it's usually around nine months that would we, well that's why we that's why we use malinois mm. um because german shepherds just usually aren't ready that young mm-hmm. so we, that's why we use malinois and, and malinois bodies tend to hold better hold together better than german shepherds as well so that's another reason so with the malinois we use usually around nine months right but some, some are younger we, we did dagger a few years ago at five months but if we can get them that young, we won't actually wear a hidden sleeve. We'll actually let them bite just young. let them bite us.
1: Yeah. What was the name of that big dog that you had on the course we did with Bart? Pope. Pope. That was Pope. Yeah. Pat came back when he last worked him and said that he's a pretty
3: legit dog. Credit to you for having raised that dog. I was saying, because I worked him, oh, it's nearly 12 months ago when, when, um, yeah. when the SOG came up for school and it's probably, aside from the first time, it's probably the first time Time since that I've actually been legitimately scared of working a dog. Like I, um, yeah. I don't imagine a dog's gonna kill me, right? Like I, that's not how it ends for Pat Stewart right? <laughs> until he yeah. until
1: Pope. Well, but
3: like if something goes wrong, I'm sure I could be hurt. I could be badly fucked up by a dog. I could lose a limb, but I just don't see myself being killed by a dog, right? This is probably what will be written on my head tombstone <laughs> after I kill by a dog. That, that's not what's going to happen, Pat Stewart.
0: But, You're playing with fire here, man. Yeah,
3: but when they brought him out. And I'm standing there in my fucking comp suit. And I, was, I thought, oh, <laughs> shit. I thought, look at the size of this monster. And I'd heard all the stories and, you know, I'd seen some video and all that. And then, but when he was working me, it was at one point, and I put the hurts on him, right? Like I was, you know, he's, just, he's a legit dog. I was working him for the boys. And well, they were practicing control work under, you know, extreme pressure. So I was putting the yeah. pressure on. And at one point I was laying on top of him. And then I thought, how am I going to fucking get up with this dog, right? Like, because he weighs as much as me. How am I going to be able to get up so that I can, you know, push him into this wall? And all I did was twist him so that he could get a purchase off of his back legs. And that fucker picked me up. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't right. have to worry about how am I going to get up with his dog attached to me. He picked me yeah. up and just drove me into the wall. He's he's something else. He's a He's Uh, a real
0: deal. He's a a special dog. He's a special dog. Yeah,
1: Pat was telling me about him. He said, when he eyeballed me, he said he was just looking straight through me to destroy me. And he goes, because when we first met him, he was just a pup and he was a bit of a goof. He was 10 months old. Yeah, yeah. He was just a big, but he was a big dog, like big for a male. Because Pat came back and he goes, remember that dog that, Ben had when we were on the gold school with Bart? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, the big male. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, fucking hell. He goes, man, that dog is, he's full legit. He goes, there's not many dogs that rattle me. And he goes, but he rattled me.
3: Yeah, mate, credit to you. You did an amazing job with mm-hmm. him. Because like I say, it's one of the, Yeah, it's probably the, the first time since the first time I ever worked a dog that I thought, oh shit, this is. This is actually a very dangerous thing I'm doing here.
0: <laughs> he's he, he is, he is a, a dangerous dog, and, and he's a real deal. But the funny thing is he's also balanced. Yeah. And, and we get a lot of questions about the dogs we raise, the way we do it. Well, you can't just have vicious dogs, and you can't. And how they bite's really important. Well, was his bite mouthy, Pat? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. So – we, we do the, the other side as well. So that's how we introduce him to biting, but we're always doing the other side. We're making them social, we're making them balanced. And that was the big thing. I remember I used to go get him out of his pen and he'd be asleep and then would have a stretch, chill out, <laughs> trot over. He wasn't a he- He's not a hectic dog, he's, but he is extreme. Yeah. He's extreme, yeah. I, he's a special dog.
3: With this like system it. you're talking about, mate, like you use many others and you've sort of developed this yourself. Every strength is a weakness somewhere else in dogs. And sure. you, obviously you, you think there's enough in your use of it. There's enough ticks in the pros column that it's worthwhile continuing. But have yep. you noticed where else do you see it? Like, cause that's what I was going to ask, like grip. Cause mm. you know, in all my imprinting grip from a young age is important to mm. develop that kind of stuff. And you guys aren't doing yeah. that. I'm curious, is that something that is of concern or you don't have the problem or your end users aren't concerned about it or, you know, because the truth be told, like, grip for me is a big thing, but for me, because it says points in it.
0: Yes, yes. So obviously, real time, there's no points in grip, but there is purpose for grip. The Mm -hmm. dog should be using pain compliance, not just mauling people. And there's no way the police would accept that, um, or the military. So the dog's got to... It should be a full, hard pushing grip to achieve pain compliance, not to cause horrendous injuries. That's yeah, not, not that's excessive not force. Yes. So they want one bite, they want a pushing grip, just like, just like you would for your sport, Pat, I guess.
1: An incapacitator.
0: Yes. So what are the weaknesses in our system? For sure, that can be harder to achieve because you're doing less of that as the dogs are growing up. But we do a lot of grip work just with us, the handler, so just playing games we right. do a lot of that. We just don't let them play with decoys but they can play with handlers. They'll even play with each other cuz we're mates and we're just having a having a game. Mm-hmm. But we never set up a we never blur the lines between now there's a decoy now it's dangerous but now it's fun and we're just doing a grip and now it's a bit but it's fun but it's dangerous but it's fun now nah, it's now once it's dangerous it's always dangerous.
3: Okay.
0: Yeah, that's sort of how we do it. But we've found that the grips are mainly genetic. If we get the genetics right, the grips usually come okay um, by themselves. is another probably one of our weaknesses. Right. With with this, you, we don't teach enough targeting when they're young. Well, and we try and do it with again wedges playing with us, but um that's the part that we sort of have to try and bring later on in the piece. Is is a targeting. I remember Pope or was training with the boys when he was about sixteen months of age or something. And he got away from the handler. He was meant to do obedience around a bite. And I was about 20 metres away from him in a suit. And he got away from the handler. And we hadn't done enough targeting, so he didn't even know to jump and how to target properly. Mm-hmm. And he just hit me centre of the scene mass and knocked <laughs> me about five metres flying, and I landed on the ground, and it was just a cloud of smoke. And
2: uh, I, got I was highly motivated, <laughs>
0: but... Yeah, so targeting's probably (laughs) – targeting's one of the
3: issues. Yeah. (laughs) I was in the bus one time and I figured, you know, he'll find me – he'll send me and he'll come through the front of the bus, right? And I had this whole plan of how I was going to catch him and that'll be fine. But the back window of the bus had been blown out and um, (laughs) – He kind of caught scent of me like through that back window and he, he never even like he was on the the non door side of the bus. So he came around there. Obviously the scent was pulling out the back window and I lost sight of him. And I thought, you know, it's a busted window. I thought, oh, fuck, he's going to cut himself on this thing as he jumps in. Like, I'm, I'm, So I start running from the front of the bus where I've got this perfect setup of how I'm going to catch him and keep myself safe, right? <laughs> so I start running down the back thinking, this poor this poor animal's going to need Pat's help, right? Like, I'm going to have to help <laughs> him out. Well, <laughs> and I've got this whole I've, – I've envisioned this whole scenario where he's kind of stuck in the window and I have to feed him an arm and kind of help him into the bus. No, that's not how it went. What ended up happening was me running up the aisle as to get to him as he clears it like a horse going over a steeple, right? Like just clean straight yeah, into yeah, this yeah. bus. And then it turns into me tr- like fucking running away from this dog trying to, get, trying to get to somewhere to safely catch him and him hitting me in the center of the back. Oh, it was a disaster. It was... A, it was it was a fucking disaster. And the boy's like, come out. It's, it, come out of the bus. I said, that ain't out, happening. Yeah, like, that yeah, ain't no happening.
1: <laughs> I've got no spine left.
3: <laughs>
1: what was left of it? Uh, it was hanging by the thread. And now it's gone. It's, it's funny.
0: It, it's funny. People always want this this real hectic drive in their puppies. But I'll tell you, when he was 12, 13, 14 weeks of age, his drive was really underwhelming. Yeah. Really underwhelming. Well, that's was, I
3: remember when you had him there, I remember aside from the how big he was, I said, Oh, it was unremarkable. Like he was just a nice dog, but he was really yeah. big, but he looked he like was, a big goof. Yeah, he was just yeah, unremarkable. He was like he was yeah. no different from his two brothers that were there and it was yeah. just like, Oh yeah, he's a he's a dog. You know, like a big yeah. one, but a dog. And then when I saw him again I thought, Holy fuck, what's mm, happened? Yeah,
1: I know, you gave me the rendition of it. <laughs> no, he just Pat said it, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde situation. He what he was is not who he is now. Like and he told me the bus story. He said, you know, like legit that dog came sailing through and gave me no time at all to escape. He said he was just on me. Yeah. Yeah, that is credit to you as a, you know, raising a great dog. That's exactly what it want. And I totally agree with you. I support exactly what you said before is the lure and the fascination of having these hectic and out of control young puppies is you wish for it until you get it and then you think, fuck, now I've got – all this excessive leakage that this dog is giving me, and and sometimes it it transforms into not exactly what you wanted. You know, sometimes it it turns into some pretty expressive nerves as well. Where you're thinking, you know, this is just not. It's going yeah. completely polar opposites of where I wanted it to go.
0: Yeah, nerves are a big thing for us. So we we try and focus on nerves when they're younger and hope that we pick the right mating. And then we try and pick the the puppy with the best nerves. I actually rarely pick the puppy with the best drives. Um, yeah, I go I go for nerves, and and I hope the drives come through. With hope, sort of the genetics that they're, they're really sort of late matures as far as Malinois go, and they and they tend to change at about between ten and twelve months is when they tend to sort of things change for them, and their real drive comes out. Yeah, but they're they're not nervy. They're very very thick nerve dogs. Yeah. Yeah. But-
3: I say that all the time when people say what you look for in a puppy. I say stability above all else. Yeah.
1: I don't know if you heard one of our earlier podcasts. Pat and I were over at Sean Edwards' place last year in September and a guy called Jeff Allen was over there who's a PSA decoy and he had his dog Silas over there. If you met this dog and didn't know any of his background, you'd just assume that he's a a weak, sucky dog. Driverless potato. Yeah. He looks like a weak, showbred Malinois. And you'd think, you know, and and I'm not knocking him or being disrespectful. That's just what you would think because he's – he's a real sissy, you know, like he likes to climb up on your lap and soak and swan all over you and lay on his back and get his belly rubbed. And uh, Pat was saying to me, I know what you're thinking about this dog, <laughs> but you see this dog on the field and he's a beast, you know, like he yeah. transforms as soon as he gets into, into working mode. And I said, yeah, I believe you. And he goes, but that's the genetics behind Jerry and, and Sean and Janet's dogs. You know, he said there's some legit killers in there. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I, I believe you. When I worked with yeah, one yeah. of these little females over there, I, I couldn't believe the the talk and the pressure and the hurts that this dog was putting on me, a tiny little package. And yet, you know, she was trying to break my leg and it was, and yeah, she yeah. was doing everything she could to try and make that happen.
3: Ben, yeah. I've got a, I've got a question for you, mate, on, the, yeah, on the topic of maturity and age and that sort of thing. So I guess we didn't discuss it. We didn't get to that part in your story, but a large part of your job now is choosing dogs for police, right? Not just being a supplier, but also a selector for Western Australia police. That's right. So, on average, dogs that come to you for a, an assessment that get through, what
0: what sort of yeah. age
3: are you looking at there?
0: Age? Yeah. It depends a bit on breed, on the on the vendor themselves and and on how much we need a dog at the time. Right, yeah. Okay. There's a lot of different lot of different factors there. But we don't like to get them too young because you don't know what they are yet. Mhm. Or we want to start with a puppy and try and keep it in our system, if that makes sense. Yeah. And we've actually had we've got a better success rate with that doing it that way than we are buying them from vendors at the moment. Right. Okay. But yeah, we've we've had them at, at around seven months of age, and we've also got them around ten months of age, and some older uh, at around two. When you get them at two, around that age, you know what you've got. You just know straight away what is he and and you can press all the buttons you need to press to see who he is in, in that two-week period yeah what we find is most people really don't understand what a police dog needs to be they don't and that's not a slight on anyone how could you know because you you don't work in it you don't work there yeah and the only reason me and jace know is because we listen to our end user and we listen to them closely i mean and when they tell us that hey man this dog didn't engage and this dog was scared of slippery floors and this dog was can't handle loud noises and this dog didn't like crowds we really listen to that and then we we really try and make sure we iron those those faults out but the reality is out of a hundred very good dogs I think less than five are gonna actually be suitable to start the training Mm -hmm. and then probably only two of those will actually make it through the training Mm -hmm. and that's the reality the hard it's really tough in this industry to to convince people that what they think is, for instance, ball drive. Actually, isn't drive like if a dog will play reasonably well with a ball, well, that's not close to enough drive to be a dual-purpose dog. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Um, yeah, he needs to be passionate about the ball. He needs to be he needs to be so passionate about playing. I can be walking down the street, pick up a bit of rubbish, and engage him in a game, and he goes crazy for that. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of drive that those dogs need. And then on the other side, to be able to actually fight is a different biting a sleeve's easy. Any dog can do that. But to actually remembering these are police dogs, they may have to help the handlers in a fight against a 110 kilo yeah. meth head. They need to be spectacular dogs, not just good dogs. It's so it's really hard, eh? It's really hard because a lot of vendors get really upset really easily. That's, a tough, that's tough. That's the toughest part of my job, really.
1: In, in, that <laughs> field, find dogs. Yeah, in that field, you're looking for an Olympian, not someone who's just good at little athletics. That's right. Mm. Yeah. I understand and what if you we mean. We get a lot
0: of people go, oh, he'd only been there two days. You're already trying to walk him upstairs and, and walk him in buildings, and why aren't you letting him get accustomed to his environment? Well, history tells us if he needs more than a day to get, well, if he needs any time to get accustomed to his environment, he's probably not the right dog. Often we know as soon as he gets off the plane whether he's the right dog. That's the harsh reality. And I would always, as a trainer, I'm not on the road, I'm not on the tools. Me and Jace aren't on the tools. We're just dog trainers. I would always want to err on the side of caution insofar as making sure that a dog who's going to fail on the road doesn't get there that's where I err on. So if I'm wondering, oh maybe, I just get a new dog. Yep. To me, that's an easy decision. And if he works out for someone else, great. I don't, I don't, that doesn't upset me at all. But um for me, I, I was thinking he's a maybe. So I'll get another one. I don't want maybes. I want yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's sort of how we we approach it. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think me and you have spoken about this once before. That you know, in the dog world, people, as you say, people. You'll say the word vendors, but a lot of the time these are just people, right? Like you give, when you say vendor, you give the impression that these are like people who are doing this professionally or big facility and, you know, got a company name, but it's just Jono trying to do his (laughs) dog along, right? Like trying to make a few bucks,
0: right? The reality, that's mostly what you're talking (laughs) about. There's no real, there's not really a proper top vendor like they have in America where they have hundreds of dogs and huge staff and yeah, you're probably going to have those.
3: And so I think a lot of time people can get a bit upset and take things personally. And even like the state of, dogs in Australia, like I've talked about this, there just isn't competition in Australia because no one's turning dogs away. Like you could, mm. you could legitimately hate someone with an overwhelming passion, but if they've got a dog that's suitable for you, you're fucking buying that dog, right? Because you don't have the luxury yes. of, of, oh, I'll find another one down the road or there's another guy who's selling it as good or better dog like that. just yeah, We don't have exist. that here. That's not it. There is no space for personal conflict because there just isn't the dogs. If, yep. if you had two equally good dogs and one was being sold by someone you like and someone was being sold by an asshole, yeah, okay, you're gonna choose the guy you like, but that doesn't happen. No, <laughs> like at, at no, like no one in Australia has a kennel full of dogs that are ready to go and are suitable for the work that aren't being sold because the guy who would buy them doesn't like him. Yeah. Like that ain't happening. Mm. That That is impossible. Agreed. He's, like we'll buy dogs from the goddamn Taliban if they had them. Right. Like,
0: <laughs> like cause we have, like there's, we don't have the choice that we. The supply and demand is an issue in Australia, a massive issue. Totally. Yeah. Totally. It's a, it's a, and I think, it's, it's compounded by, by the fact that not enough people actually know what a, what it is, what what the what a good dog is. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So they go, oh, I've got this cracker, and it's not a cracker at all. It's actually rubbish. He just puts on a big wall face, but he's, there's no real substance to it. Or yeah. on the flip side, we've also, Jace recently got a hold of a really, really awesome dog that was just sitting in someone's backyard, not doing anything. Yeah, right, yeah and it was a he was a monster one of the best grips i've ever seen an absolute monster and we only got it actually lisa carter put us onto it because she bred the litter from her dog eves and we know the genetics we knew that the genetics is really strong because we've already produced a few dogs out of him doc drago and dagger so he's a he's a brother to those so we grabbed him and he knew nothing he was a and he was a 16 17 month old dog Knew mm. nothing at all, and I think Jace, within four months, had turned him into a, an absolute weapon. Nice. And you're just sitting in someone's backyard, Man, That's that's the sort of
3: shit that keeps me up at night, wondering about how many phenomenal dogs are turning <laughs> food into shit. You <laughs> yeah. know.
1: Well, oh, yes. I don't. I don't think you have to stay up too late because it doesn't exist now like it used to.
3: But there would be. theres there
1: is. There they're out there. But I mean, they're still a rarity compared to what they used to be. Like you know, once males start populating the planet a bit more that's going to be the case again and mm. and certainly with some good shepherds but you know i've told you stories from circa 20 years ago where there were some amazing roddies out there yeah. you know roddies that were real head turners i mean you look at roddies now and you go mm, meh you know like they're you go mm, meh i go yeah. But, but I mean, 20, 20 plus years ago, some of those roddies, you'd be going fuck, like, you know, like they're legit killers. Yeah. You know, and they and they were, because there was a, like the bloodlines you were talking just now, Ben, there was a bloodline, Felix, Echo and Jupe, Von Magdenburg, the Von Magdenburg lines. You knew if you had that combination, these dogs, they were legit going to fight. Yeah, You know, they had great grips, they had good nerve. I mean, depending on, on the breeding of course, but these dogs existed and there were a lot around and then people were very afraid of them and they were giving these dogs away. You know, and you knew that if you had that combination of the dogs, you had a you had a winning combination. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, they are yeah. not around anymore. That's a bloodline that's becoming extinct.
0: A, a lot of it's genetics, eh? Hey? People breeding for different things. If you're breeding for show, then aggression's bad for the show because your dog's hard for people strange people to handle and the judge has got to be able to pick him up and move him around. So you know, more more roddies end up in the show than anywhere else, so yeah. that's where the breeding sort of headed towards. And even sport breeding, you need a particular type of dog for the sport, so it sorts to it, it sort of starts to suit the sport. And every every gene pool is the same. The KMPV genetics, they're real good sprinters, that but they don't have a lot of stamina. or their a lot of their exercises are very short. Then the next dog short. Then the next dog short. The MVBK-type lines, they're super good environmentally, not really scared of anything. The FCI lines are more trainable but higher activity levels and, and tend to have a bit finer nerves. And I just think your breeding is everything. Yeah. yeah. It really is. Yeah. And it's it's
3: so hard for us being the island that we are. Right? Yeah. We've got what yeah. we have Our here. quarantine laws, our distance, everything. Yeah. Mm. And then what's disappointing is, you know, sometimes you see someone – make the leap of faith and drop a heap of money to bring a new dog into the country and, and it doesn't work out. And you're like, Oh, you know, like okay. this was, you were the hope of the I side. Mean, you, you're the I'm one like, you dropped. You just dropped 30 K importing a yeah. female and it's not producing. And yep. you probably got yeah. swindled by some Dutch guy who saw you coming. and you
0: yeah, I think that there's a lot of really good genetics in Australia, especially with the males. I don't really know a lot about the genetics with the German shepherds in Australia at the moment just sort of lost touch with those to be honest if I'm honest but with the mouse there's a lot of really good dogs in Australia a lot of really good genetics but there's also a lot of rubbish
1: yeah that's you always know, at risk and it. that exists around the world well, too
0: yeah I, I, I hear a lot of people talk about oh man he's from he's from Germany. So what? <laughs> he's a dog. That's all. He's a dog from Germany. I don't care. He's oh man. He's from Europe. So who cares?
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. My f- my favourite line is matter? his dad's a champion, and I go of what? Yeah. <laughs> like,
0: well, you called me I've on that, one that <laughs> once.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I reckon the,
0: b- the best Malinois breeding wise I've ever seen, and I've been lucky enough to see a lot of dogs from around the world. I reckon the best Malinois I've ever seen were bred Brother Air Force. Really. I reckon they're breeding some of the best dogs. They're not always getting it right, but some of their lines are much better than the rest of the world. Yeah, right. They're okay. Easily world well class. Some of their lines easily, because they're willing to do things others aren't. They mix FCI with yeah, yeah. Um, MVBK with KMPV. They mix it all. They don't care. And I think sometimes they're really, really, really getting it right. And dogs like, you know, Pope are the result.
3: Yeah, I think as well yeah. the way that the landscape has changed a little bit now with the SOCOM having dogs as they've spent a lot of money on really good dogs that are now in the gene pool as well. For sure. I've noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah where well, the Air Force just didn't have the budget in the past to do that. And yeah. SOCOM turn up with their great big special forces budget and mm. bring in a bunch of dogs that then are in the military gene pool.
0: Yeah. And I think also SOCOM had the necessity to know what a good dog was. Yeah.
3: The testing so- ground.
0: Raf would send dogs over to SOCOMs because SOCOM needed dogs in the early days, and they'd go, This is well, this is rubbish. That they and they didn't know that, but that's how they are, you know. Yeah, they're real. So they go, Oh, Raf are the dog experts. Raf say these are good. They took them, they try to work them. They're like, No, they're rubbish. They're nothing like the US dogs that we saw, which motivated us to start a program. Yeah, how do we get those ones? And then things started to change. So certainly they've been the driving force for the improvement in, in their breed in yeah. Raf for sure. Yeah.
3: yeah. Mate, you've said his name a couple of times, but we haven't sort of introduced you. So you say Jace. So he's your yeah. business partner in Canine Solutions.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And yep.
3: how long have you guys been working together?
0: Yeah, we've been working together since I think I first started working with Jace around 2004 ish, two, maybe 2005, something right, okay. like that. Right. Okay. Long time. Yeah. And what's his in background? The Air Force. So he joined the Air Force as a dog hammer. Mm hmm. He left the Air Force at the same time as me. He bullied me into starting a business. And that's pretty much how <laughs> our lives have progressed since then.
3: <laughs> he bullied me into starting. You, you look like a guy <laughs> that could <can> be bullied. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. He worked for me for a little while in the Air Force. Yeah. And and then he said, We used to we were really good mates and we'd get on the piss all the time and talk about how we should fucking just do our own thing and uh and literally one day he wrote he me up and said, Ben, we've just started a business. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And um, he literally started a business. And, right. And I've been trading under your I've,
1: name for the I've,
3: last two years. i your signature. <laughs> you're, you're the sole director. I've taken out a bunch of loans.
0: <laughs> He's a really, really, really good dog person.
3: So what else is it that you guys do at Canine Solutions? So obviously you're raising, training, selling dogs to police and military. What else have you got going on?
0: Obviously, we're contracted with Waypole, Canon Solutions are, and um, we've just helped them reinvigorate their program, I guess, sort of modernize it. They're trying to really grab a hold of contemporary training, et cetera, et cetera. So we really brought Barton Michaels' Napopo system into their training. Mm-hmm. So that's the system that they use now as their foundation for everything they do. And obviously, we, we implemented our non-factor system of teaching dogs to engage real targets. And we've done that for the last two and a half years. So that, right. that, that's the other sort of side that we're doing at the moment. And- on the other side, I'm doing Gertz Canine, where I'm just, that's our civilian side of the business, I guess, right. where we do a bit of sport training. And then we've just started some classes this year to do nose works.
1: And yeah, I saw you advertise started- that. Good on you, man. That's uh, good. Yeah, I
0: think a lot of people want to do that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's good fun. And I think it's not very suitable, inclusive. But mm.
0: yeah, nose work—you can do nose work with freaking any dog. Any you want. dog. Any, any dog can want. do it.
1: So I'm, um, I'm gonna—I'm gonna try and title my little in unit. Yeah, what?
0: And um, Frenchies actually got great noses.
1: They eh? have got, got great noses, and people have said to me, oh, Bracky's this, that, and the other." Well, I'm thinking, well, I'm gonna try and push myself to get a title on her.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, I, I must admit, I probably would have thought the same unless I saw.
1: Was it Sam's? Sam's? Yeah. Um, Sam's
0: little,
3: shit. Mr. Wilson, yeah.
0: Holy shit, that thing was amazing.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, nice. he, was, was yeah he
1: was a top little dog.
3: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mate, yeah. When he had him Sorry. tracking, when I was down at his place one day and he goes, oh, yeah, I've been doing some tracking with Mr. Wilson and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to just work a little footpad or something. And he was footstep tracking. Along the street? Um,
1: yeah. Along uh, a Yeah, until I got bored
3: of, bored of watching it. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, this is, <laughs> yeah, like, it'll stop any minute now. And he didn't. He followed the footstep and, like, like as good as any IPO dog could. And it actually was even more funny and slash impressive because of his little flat nose actually fit in every
1: footstep. So his whole head would be. Yeah. yeah it looks like somebody head. pushing a fist into the ground. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I must admit that, that blew my mind on that seminar to see that. He brought that thing out and I'm like, oh my God, yeah. what, is, what is this? Yeah. And then I saw it work I'm like, hang on a sec. What am I, what am I seeing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was of, quite, quite impressive.
1: He had that dog riding that rocking horse. That, that was pretty impressive. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty damn impressive. Yeah. Off topic for a sec, Ben. And I know this won't be by the time we bring the podcast out, but it was your birthday yesterday. Happy birthday. Oh, was it?
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, a couple of days ago. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. Happy, oh, happy birthday, birthday, man. man. Yep, I'm old. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank how you. old are yeah, you? Had a few yeah, how old interviews are you? with the boys. We did a training session and then uh, had a couple of quiet scotches with Jace. And uh, we gave a couple of dogs their first bite. It was a good day, actually. Nice. I had my, head on my kids there. It was a really good day. How old's Thanks old?
1: How old's old, mate? Jace. No, you. How old oh, are you?
0: Oh, me. I'm 43. Oh,
1: fucking hell. It's just a whippersnapper. Yeah, just a young fella. <laughs> <laughs> And
3: so you guys are running and some I'm schools. I'm feeling it, i tell you. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
3: so uh, you did the first <laughs> Nipopo school here, and the first silver and gold, and then Jace was on, uh, I think, a couple later, the one down in Melbourne. And so now yeah. you guys are running some training in that?
0: Yeah, yeah. We're running Nipopo theory. Uh, we've done one already. We've done one last year. Soup, everyone loved it. We really Drew it over four days and we we're a bit worried because we know a lot of people sort of struggle with that much theory mm-hmm. but it went super well everyone loved it everyone was talking about coming back and doing it again so we decided to do it again so we're doing it again late February 21st to the 24th and then we're running like a practical in March as well nice so but for the and we try to sort of I guess copy map Barton Michael's sort of idea where we wanted everyone to do the theory first, go away, practice on their dogs before yep. we start to try and do a bit of practical. I could like just see that turning into a bit of a mess. You're trying to teach them po, and, and they're probably going to want you to start using the e-collar all the time because they, they know that's you know, that's a big part of it. And then I'd be going, no, no, he's a clicker, <laughs> yep. give him food. We're not going to use the e-collar because you haven't got him in the system yet. And uh, Yeah, so we've tried to sort of avoid that. Yeah, sorry. I think
3: it's, that's kind of taking off. I think most people around the world who are teaching Nipopo, and it's certainly how, even when I'm just doing a two day seminar, I insist on a, a theory day, yeah. because I just think to do it any other way is to put the cart before the horse, you know, and a, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I learned by doing it. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. But You don't know what to do when you bring the dog in. Like we need to talk about this Mm. so that we can at least then set the dog up for success. And, you know, so much of it is capturing the right thing when it happens. If me and you were talking about what we're going to do and the dog is doing the right thing over there, then we just had a bad session, right? So I think it's a great idea what you're doing for sure.
0: Yeah, cheers. We're really enjoying it. I love the system. That's really – when I did the theory, I I remember doing the silver – And then I got on the phone to Jay straight away and said, hey, man, you got to do this. This is going to change everything. Mm -hmm. I've been training dogs for a long time. We've both been training dogs for a long time. And overnight, I started changing. Mm -hmm. I I just said, no, this is how to do it. This makes perfect sense. I understood why a whole bunch of things I did I've always had trouble with. And I understood why a whole bunch of things I did well were Mm -hmm. working well. And and then it, it started, everything started to fall into place. So... I think the system's awesome, and I think it's awesome for people that think they understand learning theory and, and dog training, Yeah, but actually don't. It yeah, fills in I, a lot of blanks.
1: So there's a lot of cement there that, mm. you know, like there's a lot – I think there's a lot of cracks in it because you you know what you know until you learn something entirely different. I guess the way I've explained it to people, it's kind of like that university professor that talks about how to put rocks in a glass – you know, he talks about yeah. putting the large ones in first, then the the gravel in and shaking them all around and then adding the sand in afterwards to complete the picture. Like if you, unless you do it that way, it's not going to it's not mm-hmm. going to fall into place. And that really is about things falling into place. So when I was listening yeah. to Bart doing the first time, well, I've only done Silver School once, but when I listened to Bart do it, there was things I'm going, oh, shit. And then I heard Pat saying it because I've listened to him do it a bunch of times now, and I've thought – fuck yeah, it's now making even more sense. Like, you know, the translation is really, it's really coming to place. Like it's really getting some congruency right across it. And I think that's important for people when you are talking about running your four-day course and when Pat's talking about immersing yourself in the theory side of it, unless you're prepared to do that, you really will miss some of the real meat about it. And you're in danger of incompleting yourself as a trainer and learning the nuts and bolts of a very, very good and well thought out and very well planned system unless you do it that way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's certainly the, the system for, you know, to do four days of theory, you've got to be a crazy sort of dog person. Yeah. It's, it's not for yeah. it's not for your average person. Uh, yeah. You've got to really, really love training dogs and be passionate about it like a religion almost. Yeah. But if that's who you are and you love dog training, you're crazy not to do it. Yeah, you fortunately. Crazy. literally crazy not to do it. Fortunately yeah. for us, there's and plenty the, of people I think that the beauty of the system test. is you don't have to use it. But when I'm not using it, I know I'm not using it. I know why I'm not using it. And I know what may or may not be the ramifications of not using it. And And I think that's part of the system in itself. So yeah. that's what I love about it. it. It tells you what are the likely ramifications of everything you're about to do. What are all the tools you can use? It's just... I think it it's the only thing I've ever seen that I can use for every behavior. I can use that to approach every single behavior I want to create or extinguish.
3: Mm. Yeah, yeah, well said. It. We won't keep you too much longer. Thanks so much for making the time for us. Really appreciate it. If people have a dog that plays with a ball and they want you to test it, how can they- how can they get in contact with you? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to tell yeah. us about what you're offering. How can people get uh, in contact with you? What's the best way to follow you on your socials and stuff?
0: Yeah, so got obviously Instagram, Canine Solutions Australia. We've got Facebook, Canine Solutions Australia as well. Or just jump on our website. That's for the, the military and the sort of policing side. And then on the civic side is Gertz Canine Solutions. So if you want to get involved in a sporting type role, nose work, and trick classes, or just we offer a group what we call a functional obedience class. Mm-hmm. You could do that as well. We call it the big three. We teach a dog to walk in a loose leash to down when he's told and to come when he's called. Perfect. Yeah. Um, that's all he
3: needs.
0: Yeah, it's all he needs. And then he can function in society. So the C V side is Gertz canine. I've got a we've got a bunch of trainers working for us now. And that's we're trying to grow that slowly. But the military and the policing side is Canon Solutions Australia, yeah.
1: I'll add all that in the website show notes as well, so all your details on how to contact you, I'll chuck it in there.
0: Yeah, Ripper. Thanks each guys. Awesome, welcome, thanks,
1: mate. mate. Thanks for making the
0: time. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Pleasure.
3: That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you access to some extra episodes. But if you wanted to buy me a Lamborghini, you could go ahead and do that. Or Um, me a Whisper Room. Yeah, or Glenn a Whisper Room. The other way you could do it is buy some merch on Teespring. You could look cool while you support the show, some new hoodies, some T shirts, singlets, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's how dare you, sir, it ranges out. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to shoot us an email at info at the canineparadigm.com or jump in the discussion group and hopefully the group think can answer your questions. Absolutely. That's it. Glenn, music.